Hello, and welcome to today's episode. Today, we're in for, well, I don't, I don't even know what to call it. I don't really want to say treat, unless you're like a true weirdo like me, and true crime just kind of blows your mind. But today features the crimes of a criminal that just honestly fascinates the snot out of me, because I just, the amount of weirdness that this guy like throws out there and awkwardness is just, I, I don't even know. And I also, I don't know how he got away with it. I don't know why no one caught on. I literally don't know. And I assume if you know the case, then you kind of have the same questions as I do. But if you don't, well, then you will probably have some similar questions at the end. So shall we get started? I think so. Hi, welcome to Crooked Crimes. I am your host, Taylor. I am just a simple homegrown gal with a fascination of people and the crimes that they commit. I am in no way a professional, although I would love to be. And today I'm here to tell you the details of a crime that you may already know and discuss my thoughts and opinions. Today's disclaimer is we will be discussing murder. Um, We'll be discussing someone with a double life. There will be talk of strangulation and a slight reference of BDSM. So if any of those things trigger you, today's episode is not for you. If not, well then, buckle up folks, because today is going to be a day. As many of you know, I always like to begin the crime line with the time and place in which the crime took place. However, uh, we're kind of in one of those times where the crimes took place over a period of time, and so I'm just going to kind of give you the highlights of a decade in which the crimes were covered, starting with one of my personal favorites, the 1980s. And what do we know about the 80s? Well, it was a time to be alive, friends. Many of you are listeners who were either A, born in the 80s, or B, born in the 90s, so nostalgia just kind of trickles down memory lane. And we think about the golden days ah, before social media. Just me? Okay, moving on. So the 80s as a decade can be put into these simple highlights. And again, this is my own personal opinion, although I did do some Google searchings. All right, big hair. Yep, bright colors. Fashion was a little eccentric. Um, Rap music started in the 80s. Ronald Reagan was president. The Berlin Wall fell and any John Hughes films. Just any of them. If you don't know any of them, then shame on you. There were big hair bands, as well as boy bands, and pop was pretty much on top. Now, that's like the most brief overview I can give you because, yeah. And the crimes went through into the 90s, which transitioned ever so slightly. Things became a little more technical than the predecessor, and owning a computer in your home was more of a thing. Everyone had Tamagotchis, and we all supersized our fries, remember? Guys, remember bucket fries? Those were the days. Strolling around Walmart with our big old bucket of fries. Yeah. Disney movies were making a comeback and everybody was obsessed with Beanie Babies. I legit remember the chaos when Princess Diana died and everybody was trying to get that purple bear with that white flower. If you were old enough to remember, then you know too. Anyways, the days were golden, the times were high, and the location is yet another fun one because we're going to be in the state of Indiana, but rather than tell you the stats of the city that it all horrifically happened in, I'm going to give you the details of the home in which it happened in because, 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 because it happened to be featured on an episode of Ghost Hunters and Paranormal Adventures. And in honor of Spooky Month, my favorite, we're just going to talk about that. So, now, 
typically I don't mention ghosts. I don't talk about ghosts because I just don't. It's just not my thing. Okay. I don't mess with it. It's not my thing. But I did watch the episode that uh, Ghost Hunters did on uh, Enchanted Forest in Oregon. Uh, that was great. So I also decided I'm going to just tune into this episode because I want to see like what they got. And I did fast forward through quite a few things because it just kind of bores me. But sorry, guys. So for educational purposes, I learned that this home is located outside of Carmel, Indiana, which is like a suburb of Indianapolis. It has a population of about 100,000, and it pretty much seems to be like an upper middle class area with a median income of about $100,000 annually. I wish I knew that. Ironically, it's been named one of America's safest places to live, which is funny, you know, especially when you learn of the serial killer who attacked as many as 23 men and took their lives throughout his reign of terror in the 80s and through the mid 90s. But before we talk about the criminal, here are the spooky facts about the place in which this man lived. This home has a name, and it's called Fox Hollow Farm. It's actually, like, visually striking and super beautiful by anyone's standards. There's 18 rolling acres with a mansion that was built on it that has four bedrooms, 10 bathrooms, and it's over 11,500 square feet. Hi, that's massive. That is, that's massive. This house boasts two libraries, a five-car garage, stained glass windows, and an indoor pool. It was a place that one family called Utopia. Having not known that it was also the hell in which too many men were killed and buried on the sprawling estate. Since the days of the heinous crimes, the house known as Fox Hollow Farms still exists. And at one point it did get sectioned off, so pieces of it are no longer part of it, but the main piece like remains intact. It is said to be haunted not only by the victims of the crimes, but by the monster himself, who is said to linger there and keeps his victims trapped. Yikes. People have witnessed disembodied voices, actual visual entities, as well as the feeling of someone putting their hands around their necks. Now, up to five times a year, people can actually pay to take a haunted tour of the property, in which a lot of a lot of folks claim to have various experiences. And actually, when I was doing my research, there's more pieces done on the haunting of this farm than there actually is on the criminal himself, which I thought was kind of fascinating. So with that, I want to start by saying, picture this. Imagine you're a middle-aged woman and the police arrive at your home and they ask you if they can search your property for the body of multiple victims, for the bodies of multiple victims. First of all, you're a married woman with three children. You and your husband have a small chain of thrift stores. You live at Fox Hollow Farms, and from the outside, you know that things look pretty peachy. You're living the American dream. But behind the curtain, you also know your marriage is over, your business is about to flop, and there's no way that your heterosexual conservative husband could be the man that these authorities are accusing of committing what they call homosexual homicide. Then, a few months later, in December of 1996, that same woman asked herself this question. What if the police are right and I am wrong? To make the most sense of this question, we have a lot of territory to cover, and I don't know really where to start, whether the perp himself or to start with the crimes, how the police were eventually able to figure it out. 
of like who was responsible. So with those questions, I just kind of went for it. And for obvious reasons, you all kind of know the man I'm about to tell you about is the same person who was responsible for all the crimes, which is also the same person who's the title of uh, this episode, because that's just how I do things. So his name was Herbert Baumeister. And if you know his name, then you know. And if you don't know, well, let me just say he was an interesting character to say the least. The very, very least. Born April 7th of 1947, his parents were Elizabeth and Herb Sr. He was the oldest of four, born into a seemingly upper-middle-class family, and his father was actually an anesthesiologist, and nothing's ever really mentioned as to, like, what his mom does, so I'm just kind of assuming she was, like, a homemaker. She had four kids. That's a lot. Everything was great for Herb and the Baumeisters themselves. That is, until Herb became a teenager. And then there seemed to be some sort of switch that took place, and his parents actually started noticing some alarming behavior. So I actually had this talk with my coworker the other day because my coworkers are so much fun, and they're not super into true crime, which is fun. But then I also will, you know, give them a rundown or a lowdown of uh, the crimes that I'm covering, which, yeah, most of them don't care, but it's fine. It's still fun for me. So anyways, one of my coworkers and I, uh, we were talking about how it's one of those things that applies to medical conditions as well. And, you know, like sometimes someone will have a list of symptoms and alone and isolated, those symptoms are fine. But when it comes to like a checklist for like a certain disease, if you have all these things, then you definitely have X, right? Like that's kind of how it works. Well, I think the same kind of goes with serial killers. If you have certain behaviors that doesn't necessarily make you a serial killer. Like if you had, say there's a list of five things, you have two of those five things. That doesn't necessarily make you a serial killer. However, however, if you are a serial killer, 99.9% chance you have seven of the 10 things on that list, right? So what kind of things are on this checklist? Well, in just my personal opinion, to say the very least, I'd say sexual abuse, physical abuse, or both, torture of animals, head traumas, mental health, uh, behavioral health issues, and more often than not, sorry, military experience. Like it's, I, I think it's kind of like an unwritten thing, like nobody says it, but everybody knows it. And so I'm just here saying it. So sorry, not sorry. But without getting too far into my own thoughts, because we're here to talk about Herb, the question kind of becomes like, okay, so what did Herb do that would make him like fall somewhere on that list, right? Well, it all started when Herb was a teen. So like I said, uh, when Herb was a teen, he decided it would just be a comical thing to place a dead crow on one of his teacher's desks. Ew, a dead bird on the teacher's desk. And apparently he was the only one in on this joke, and he was the only one who found it funny. Which, I feel like, yeah, that's another sign. Red flag. Was the bird already dead before Herb got to it? I don't know. Some say that he found it on the road before school, but do we know that to be the absolute truth? We don't. Who knows? Yes, I did wonder that question as well. So it started with that, along with being just, like, super disruptive and volatile with, like, his classmates. So a lot of people would kind of stay clear of him because they were just, he just would always be, like, a certain way and it made people uncomfortable. 
eventually his teachers got so fed up with him that they actually had to call his parents and be like, hey, we need your help. Like your son is actually like an issue now. Now I'm sure back in the 60s, being a doctor or a professional in the medical field, his father was a very well-respected man, like they typically are, right? And back in those days, there really wasn't a ton known about mental health, as well as the fact that, you know, being prominent or being well-respected in the community, that meant that your family kind of lived to like higher standards. So, you know, any mental health condition, people were either A, (laughs) sent off to either like an insane asylum or something similar, or B, they just would like keep everything so hush-hush that like nobody had any idea anything was going on. Again, being a doctor, I'm sure the time and the pressure was no less than perfection, So when his son starts acting up, good old Herb is like, okay, let's go get you evaluated. Great. Good choice. Love it. But once he was given that diagnosis, there's literally no medical record that he ever saw any type of treatment. To which I go, what's the point? Hi, I'm going to take my kid to the eye doctor and we're going to find out she's super blind, but I'm not going to get her glasses because, meh, I don't feel like it. And what, do you ask, was little Herbie Baumeister diagnosed with? (laughs) Well, friends, none other than schizophrenia. How lovely and untreated. Magical. Now, when doing my research, I did read an article that said, and I quote, During the 1960s, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, was the most common treatment for schizophrenia. Those with the disease were often institutionalized, And it was accepted practice to shock unruly patients several times a day. This is the best part. Not with hopes of curing them, but making them more manageable for the hospital staff. Mm, I see. In the mid-1970s, drug therapy replaced ECT because it was more humane and productive. Mm -hmm. And many patients on drug therapy could lead fairly normal lives. Whether her Baumeister received drug therapy is not known end quote. Great. Oh, and he also suffered from multiple personalities disorder. Yeah, he was a bundle of fun, which I guess is now known as disassociative identity disorder. And so when doing a quick little search on the interwebs for that, I collected this information that I will now regurgitate for you. And I quote, the disassociative aspect is thought to be a coping mechanism. The person literally shuts off or disassociates themselves from a situation or an experience that's too violent, traumatic, or painful to assimilate with their conscious self. Other symptoms of disassociative of disassociative identity disorder may include headache, amnesia, time loss, trances, and out-of-body experiences. Some people with disassociative disorders have a tendency toward self-persecution, self-sabotage, and even violence, both self-inflicted and outwardly directed. As an example, someone with disassociative identity disorder may find themselves doing things they normally wouldn't do, such as speeding, reckless driving, stealing money from their employers or a friend, yet they feel they are being compelled to do it. Some describe this feeling as being like a passenger in their body rather than the driver. In other words, they truly believe that they have no choice. End quote. So there's that. It's nice and wholesome. So there's that. Herb Baumeister's diagnosis for what his family decided, eh, he doesn't need treatment for. So we'll see how this goes. 
But then again, I am profiling him on my true crime podcast. So just heads up, it isn't great. Now, Herb went on to finish school, and I'm assuming he graduated just because it said that he entered into the University of Indiana in the year 1965. But he dropped out only after one semester. It seemed like Herb wasn't all that socially accepted, whether by the continuation of his disturbing behavior or if he was straight up a weirdo. I don't really know. His dad wasn't all that happy with his son leaving school, so he did enroll again only to just drop out shortly after. That was in 1967. Now, when he did enter school for a second time, he actually met his soon-to-be wife. Her name was Julie, and they were connected by their conservative beliefs and Republican affiliation. Mm. It doesn't ever say that they were religious, but it did say they were extremely conservative, which is generally in the same realm, and they were married at a Methodist church. Again, doesn't mean that they were religious, but facts are kind of facts, friends, and people typically do things a certain way. Because, as I mentioned earlier, his dad was a well-respected man, he was actually able to get his son a job as a copy boy at the local newspaper. Herb kind of gained this new nickname of being Weird Herb. Apparently, according to one article I read, he was trying to quote-unquote be cool, so he offered to, like, give some co-workers a ride to, like, the local university game, to which he arrived to grab the bunch in a hearse that he had just purchased. And I guess he was so into it that he actually even wore, like, a little chauffeur cap. To which those people were probably like, no, I'm not getting in there. He didn't last too much longer at that job and instead went to work at what I'm assuming is called, like, the DMV for his area. It was called the BMV. And at this job, Herb was still known for being, like, an odd dude with pretty bizarre behavior. And for Christmas one year, he actually sent out a Christmas card of him and a friend dressed up in drag. That's not exactly, like, what I would assume um, a super conservative person would do. Like, I mean, I don't really know any super conservative guys who would do that. But despite his strangeness, he actually managed to work his way up to program director. That is, until he had two separate instances in which he urinated. Once on his boss's desk to which somehow didn't get him fired and was the first time that something happened, and then again, which got him the can, was when he urinated on a letter to the then governor. I'm sorry, what? A grown man peed on his boss's desk and he didn't get fired? That's insane. And that's super weird. All the while, in this time, he also managed to snag his lady Julie and the two of them were married in November of 1971. Julie was a college graduate who I believe at the time was teaching at one point, whether it was like college or high school, I don't know. Another common factor that paired the two into their courting was their desire to become future business owners. The couple had three kids in the years 1979, 1981, and then in 1984. There were two girls and a boy. And I'm going to ex-nay the names because said children are still out there in the world, and I'm sure the last thing they want to hear about is their names at a podcast profiling their dad. After Herb's firing from the BMV, Julie, who had stopped working to raise the kids, actually had to go back to work. And I'm sure it was somewhat kind of embarrassing, you know, for the pair, but they didn't let it bring him down. So Herb started working at this thrift store, and for three years he kept that job, and then sadly his father passed away. After that, he was actually able to borrow $4,000 from his mother, and then he opened up his own thrift store, which he called Save-A-Lot. 
but it was all like caps and it's spelled S-A-V space A space L-O-T. Not that it matters, but I just told you. Whether or not this was because his father died or it just happened to be a coincidence, I don't know, but I don't believe in coincidences. The first store seemed to actually do really well, so they decided to open up another location and eventually a third location. The Baumeisters were well known, they were well respected, and the Save-A-Lot stores donated to charity annually and everybody was happy, right? Well, in this half of Herb's life, you bet. Then, in 1991, the family purchased the Fox Hollow Farms. They moved into their luxurious mansion, pool property included. From the outside, it was bliss. American dream to the T. The business, the family, the marriage, the home. But not all was well in the home front, as it so often isn't. Isn't that a bummer? Julie seemed to follow Herb's leave, but not always because she always agreed. According to somebody who encountered with the family pretty frequently, Herb would essentially just take over conversations and kind of direct Julie in whatever way he desired. For an example, now Julie, that's not the direction we're headed. We're going to go do this instead. Or, you know, like something along those lines. I totally made that up. But Julie and the kids seemed to spend an awful lot of time away. So... To the surface, it just kind of seemed like, oh, hey, they're just lucky. They're enjoying the benefits of their lifestyle. But people like me who are skeptical of everything, you know, I would also be like, hmm, maybe they're just escaping. With Herb always claiming that he couldn't be with them because, you know, he had uh, the business to tend to. So they've got the fancy house. They own some stores. They look like the Joneses, but everything was about to come crashing down and super fast. Now, when their boy was about 13, or he came inside wandering from out yonder in their 18 acres of property, right? And he brought to his mother's attention a skull that he found. But not just any skull. Nay, nay. Said boy brought in a human skull. Puzzled, Julie finds some sort of excuse for her son, and then she just kind of like puts it away to kind of show Herb when he gets home. Now, when he gets home and he questions about it, the man replies, oh, honey, that thing... That's just my dad's old anatomy skeleton. I buried it out in the backyard. And they all believed him. What? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Hi, let's go over this, shall we? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's jump into this. Okay, first of all, um, if you had said anatomy skeleton, why on earth would it be buried outside? Second, who buries an anatomy skeleton, but then goes on to tell a story about it, and everybody's like, huh, makes sense, sounds great. Like, I w what? That doesn't even make any sense. I don't know, but apparently they ate this up, but this was just another of the plethora of things that didn't seem to be adding up for Julie, as I mentioned in the start of this case. And just wait, friends, this is just the beginning. There's more. Along with having marital issues, according to Julie herself, the couple only consummated their marriage six times in 25 years. Six. That's like once every five years. And I'm not going to stand on my biblical soapbox, but guys, that's no bueno. Six. I'm mind blown by that. Six. One article claimed that she had never even seen him naked, which is odd. Some people say that she had to have seen the warning signs, like, from the start, like, from other things. But 
other people say like she had to be ignoring them but I haven't talked to Julie so I have no idea and after the trauma that this woman has been through I doubt that we will ever know and I'm not going to sit here and pressure her to ask answer these questions so the marriage starts to fall apart, right? Julie's taking the kids off more than more often than not. And I guess during the marriage, this wasn't like the first time for them to have issues, but they always seemed to find like a way to make it work. Julie talked about how like they did everything together. Like they would go outside, she would trim the bushes, he would mow the lawn. Like they had a very like, it almost makes me think like they just had like a really safe platonic marriage, which is fine, except for it's not, but yeah. So this time it obviously wasn't working out the way that she imagined. So imagine the shock of a lifetime when the cops show up at Fox Hollow Farms with this disturbing ap accusation of the man that Julie has just spent the last 25 years of her life with. Ma'am, can we come in for a second? Is your husband home? I mean, honestly, I have no idea what they said when they showed up at her door, but initially it was said that Julie declined to help them, point the finger at Herb. Even though they were about to embark on a messy divorce, she didn't hate him enough to just, like, help him or hand him over to the cops. That is until they came around a second time. Things hadn't gotten better. They had actually gotten worse. Life wasn't adding up, and Julie was, I am only assuming, beginning to believe that her whole life was kind of a lie. At least the parts that involved her husband. Then I'm sure it occurred to her, what if the skeleton that her son found in the back wasn't Herb Sr.'s anatomy skeleton? Absolutely horrified, with the police at her door again, and Herb away, Julie allowed the police to search the grounds on Fox Hollow Farms, and I don't think that anyone, not the police, not Julie, not anyone, was prepared for what they were going to find. So here's where I'm going to stop, and I'm just going to tell the story from the other side. We've heard of Herb, we heard his upbringing, his marriage, his family, so now we're going to hear more or less from like a victim's point of view, or from like the investigative point of view. Now, there is speculation that Herb is the I-70 killer, but I am neither going to confirm nor deny those accusations, and I'm going to stick mostly to the ones that were discovered within his property. Sorry for the inconvenience. Um, I guess I will make some circumstantial connections, and you guys can just kind of decide for yourself. So where do we start then? Hmm. Well, I guess we'll pretty much start where everybody else does. There was men of a certain type meaning sexual orientation, hair color, eye color, height, they all just kind of start to disappear in like a strange fashion. All from one particular area, and there suddenly became an urge to pay attention as the numbers had been like staggering. Like I want to say like upwards of like the 20s. The year was 1992, and for the gay community in Indianapolis, it seemed as though there was really like a predator on the loose like targeting them. But who was he and why? It was strange in the sense that most often when serial killers like pick a target, they tend to go after people who might, one might label as undesirable, like runaways, women in the sex trade, stuff like that. But apparently at this time, gay men were the target here. And unfortunately, while all of the men were loved and missed and wanted by their families, there seemed to be some sort of loophole that prevented investigations from starting properly at the time in Indiana. Now, again, I'm not a professional, but I do know how to read. And according to these articles, as I read, as well as podcasts that I've listened to, apparently there was a rule in Indiana that prevented a family from receiving a timely investigation of a person who would have been reported missing, in which they had to wait for 30 days before the police could step in. 30 days. 
Why does that always to be the opposite of a magical number? 30. So what does a person do when they have a loved one who goes missing and they need help now? And they need help now, not 30 days from now. Well, they hire a private investigator, of course. So I'm going to read a quote of the actual PI who worked on the case and eventually ended up working with the authorities to eventually piece together the puzzle that was Herb and all of his victims. And I quote, the way it works here in Indianapolis is that a person is not classified as missing until they are gone for 24 hours, he explains. The case then goes to a district detective, and if they don't find them with 30 days, then it travels to the Missing Persons Bureau for them to investigate. Now, to the general public, this seems like a lot of red tape and highly absurd. Parents don't want to wait to find out what happened to their kid. Wives don't want to wait to find out what happens to their husband. They come to me. End quote. Now, I'm not sure if this continues to be the way that cases are handled today, you know, because it's like 30 years later, but this was the protocol then. I don't really blame families for feeling gypped and going outside of the police. Like, that absolutely makes sense to me. So there's people missing, families are worried sick, and word kind of got round that there was nothing the police would do for a certain time. So multiple families then went to the same PI to, like, get help. Now, I'm not entirely sure of how quickly it was all pieced together, but as soon as this particular PI, his name was Virgil Vandegrift, which sounds very detective-y to me. So he was a very well-respected man in the community. He actually used to be working for law enforcement for X amount of years. He starts working with a few families, and then he gets this call. Whether he called them, they called him, I'm not really sure, but a conversation is had where there was a magazine, whether public or underground, um, again, I don't know. But this guy calls Virgil and he's like, hey, something's happening to our guys and we think it's connected. Can you kind of help us? So, of course, he's more than happy to get some sort of intel. So he starts hanging out at the local gay bar scenes to which men would frequent. And then he kind of learns that recently there were these men who would go missing without like rhyme or reason, almost as if they fell off the face of the planet, which is odd. However... <laughs> Whenever people would try to go, like, report their missing family members, the cops would just kind of write it off and be like, oh, well, your son's gay. He probably just ran off so he can go live his lifestyle. Like, they wouldn't really take it seriously at all. So people would file these missing person reports, but then, like I said, they would go to Virgil and they would kind of, like, ask him for help. So Virgil's a boss. He knows his stuff. So he immediately decides, hmm, there's got to be some sort of connection here. So he used his skills. He kind of like networks. And he learns that all of these men were of the same type and that the police were aware that something was going on. They just hadn't quite figured it out yet. So they go, they hang out at the bars, right? They talk to all the mamas. And then they found a man who had quite a story. So this, friends to me is like the best part because th this freaking story to me is just bonkers. And the things that he had to say were a freaking riot. Completely terrifying for obvious reasons, but also just wow. <sighs> Sir, if you are still out there, I am so sorry that you, we, you went through this. I hope you got the help that you needed. And bravo for not only handling a monster, um, but a man who I can only imagine was the most awkward person that you have ever encountered. So it all starts when this man is at a bar, right? Guy walks into a bar. Eh? He meets a man who calls himself Brian Smart. Brian seems intriguing, and he's like, hey, let's go back to this place, and let's go have a real party. Wink, wink. 
So they end up driving um, on this dark road, and they're pretty far out there. And they arrive at none other than Fox Hollow Farms. Now, our friend here, who was the victim, he couldn't remember exactly what the sign said, but he did see the words Fox and Farms on it. But it was too dark to really see, like, anything around. But he did know that he was, like, in one of the wealthy areas. So they pull up to this grand mansion, and Brian leads them down to the pool area so they could take a swim. His claim was that the house was vacant and that um, there was only electricity, like, down in the pool area and that he was, like, the landscaper or something like that or the maintenance guy or the, the groundskeeper. Some sort of cock and bull story. Yeah, so he's, like, the only place we can go to is the pool area. Now, the pool was in the basement, more or less, and so upon arrival, this guy was in complete shock <laughs> to walk down into a pool room literally full of mannequins. I repeat, this pool room is full of freaking mannequins. What the actual? They're all posed in different positions, and I can only imagine how creepy that must have been, because mannequins freak me out. Some people are scared of clowns. I don't like mannequins. Uh-uh. No. Mannequins are weird. I'll just start with that. I've never seen a mannequin that like, like I like, ever. My oldest and I actually found a mannequin that is so creepy. She even has fake eyelashes on, so I named her Carolyn. And I say hi, and I send her my daughter pictures every now and then. I'm such an awesome mom. I even offered to buy the mannequin, and I was like, you know what? Carolyn will make it to every major event in your life. You know, prom, graduation, your wedding day, the birth of your first child. It would be slightly hilarious if I did follow through with this, but we'll see. Anyways, Brian Bing brings this guy down into the creepy pool room that's filled with his mannequins, and he actually introduces them as his friends. Yikes. And he says he likes to have pool parties with his quote-unquote friends. Holy farts, guys. So they take a dip, and Brian offers him a drink, which he declines. Super smart, I'm sure. Good work, sir. Then things get a little bit more kinky and ultimately dangerous. Brian asks this guy named Tony, and I don't even think that was his real name, but that's the article, the name that he used in the article. So he asks if he's ever been choked during climax because it's supposed to be exhilarating. Tony says no, but he's not afraid of something new. So they start going at it, and sooner or later, Brian ends up slipping the pool hose around Tony's neck. Things just went from BDSM to straight-up attempted murder as Tony starts to feel himself kind of like slip in and out of consciousness. He can clearly tell that this was the plan all along, so he actually pretends to pass out. Brian then loosens the hose, and then when he drops Tony down on the ground, Tony like wakes up, and Brian is completely shocked, and he totally plays it off, and he explains, oh yeah, that's exactly how it's done. Great, why? You loved it? Right. Super fun. Mm, not so much. Brian ends up taking Tony home, miraculously, but eerily, he kind of knew that he escaped where obviously a lot of people didn't. He definitely gave off serial killer vibes. So after this, Tony goes straight to the cops. They take down his info, but honestly, they don't really believe him, so nothing is done about it. How frustrating. Somehow, someway, Virgil gets uh, word of the incident, and so he's like, maybe we've got something here. So he goes around, he's talking to people at the bars, he's asking questions, he's handing out flyers, and then he gets the call from Tony. So in one article I read that Tony was pretty standoffish with his first encounter with Virgil, and I mean, I get it, it's understandable. But like as time went on, uh, apparently the more and more that they would meet up, he would kind of like share what he experienced 
from this so-called man named Brian Smart. And what Virgil also learns is that two of his other victims that were missing were last seen getting into a blue car with Ohio plates. Now this was information, right? So Virgil asks Tony to try to make plans with Brian again. Yikes. Hard pause. If you went through what Tony went through, would you be willing to meet up with that guy again? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, knowing what he was capable of would just be insane. I mean, I guess at this point, Tony did have backup, as one would assume, but it still sounds freaky to me. Anyways, they're supposed to meet up again. This time, though, Brian doesn't show. After that, Virgil and Tony teamed up again and made an attempt to find the home in which Brian had taken Tony to. So he knew it was in a rich neighborhood outside of Indianapolis, but after driving around for hours and hours hoping they would find something, they had no luck. Then, 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 Tony was out at a bar one night, and he actually ran into none other than Brian himself, Uki. This was almost like a year later, but he was still driving the same car, and it was none other than a blue car with Ohio license plates. So he was able to write down his plate numbers. With the plate numbers, the cops were surprised to learn that the car didn't belong to a Brian Smart, but rather a Herb Baumeister which at this point y'all already knew. So they go to one of the stores that Herb owned and they start questioning him and they start and they start asking like, hey, we want to come search your property. But of course he declines. He makes up some sort of like reason why he couldn't do this. So that's where police went to Julie the first time. And we know, of course, she said no. But I guess at one point they even went to the local police where Baumeister was living, hoping to have them search the property. But because they knew Herb to be this like outstanding citizen who donated to charity and he was friendly or whatever, there was like no way that they thought that he was responsible for this heinous act. So like they weren't even interested in helping at all. They were like, uh, you got to give us more than this, like more probable cause, more get us a warrant, like give us some concrete evidence of whatever. And apparently there's like some sort of like videos circulating out there about how Herb was on the news one night because he saved like a raccoon from getting run over. And just the audacity of this man to be so concerned about a tiny little animal but could be so like whatever about actual human beings is just insane to me. Like that's the definition of insanity. Over the next few months, Julie questioned a lot of things, not only about her husband, but just kind of about her life, which makes sense. The business was on the brink of bankruptcy. They lost their contract with the charity that they worked with. Herb was having some sort of mental breakdown and was completely losing it. So, one time when he was away with their son for the weekend, Julie called the cops and agreed to come let them search. She also immediately got herself a lawyer. June 24th, 1996, 5,500 human bones were recovered from the yard of the Baumeisters. All of them human. They belonged to 11 different men, and only four of those were actually able to be identified, two of which were the victims that Virgil was investigating. Horrified, Julie contacted police as she feared for her son, who was still with his father. He was served custody papers, and so they were able to get the son back, but as soon as the news broke um, that he was a prime suspect in all of murders, he, of course, fled. Missing for nearly eight days, Herb was finally found in Canada, having shot himself in the head. Weirdly enough, he was found with a three-page suicide note that rambled on about his business woes and his failing marriage, but literally mentions nothing about the dead bodies in his backyard. 
it's just super bizarre. At the end of the day, you know, it's really hard because when criminals slash serial killers end their lives this way, on one hand, it's like, yes, they're gone for good. Great. They can't hurt anyone anymore. But on the other hand, those families, like, they don't get any justice whatsoever. And I think that that sucks. Also, on another note, I do feel extremely bad for Julie and her kids because according to her children, he was the best dad and they were obviously in complete shock because he was such a different person with them than whatever was going on. So as we wrap up, I just want to say, wow, what a case, right? Like, I don't even, I I remember the first time I heard this when I was like, what? How did all of this happen? And like, nobody picked up on it. So I guess I'll loop back kind of around and and just talk really quickly about the I-70, whether or not it is, it isn't, I don't know. I don't really, I didn't do enough research to give you like a full order. And I'm not trying to be Sarah Koenig here and leave you hanging at the end of serial, but at the same time. So there is circumstantial evidence that proves that her Baumeister was responsible for the I-70 killings because apparently there was a road that I-70, the I-70 freeway, highway, whatever it is. Sorry, I didn't look it up, but basically bodies started popping up um, and they were all of homosexual men And interestingly enough, the bodies stopped showing up at the time that Herb would have purchased the Fox Hollow Farms. So people have said that at one point he was just dumping the bodies on the side of the road to get rid of them. But then once he got his big fancy mansion house, he started burying the bodies on his property. Do we have full evidence that he was the one responsible for it? No. Was there some sort of serial killer? Yes, probably. In conclusion, guys, I just don't know. I I don't really know if there's... I, I, like, what else do you say? Especially when it ends like that. Like, it drives... It kind of, like, makes me bad that he's not going to have to face any sort of punishment. Like, I don't think that death is, like... In my opinion, I just don't think that death is good enough. Like, you took the lives of up to, like, 22 different people, and then you just got to off yourself, and, like, you get to just go off and be dead, and you don't have to, like, have any consequences for what you did. I just think that that's really annoying. And I I feel like there's more and more situations like that where people are just kind of, like, committing suicide instead of having to face up and deal with what they did. And then I just think it's really annoying. I guess in a lot of ways, there could be some people who are like, great, he's off the face of the earth. Fantastic. But, and I, I get that. Don't get me wrong. Like, I totally get that. I just also think that it sucks. So, yeah. As for, you know, people who are still encountering whatever they are encountering um, out at Fox Hollow Farms, I just, I don't know. I think that's super creepy, especially the people who go there and they feel like somebody um, like putting a hand around their neck. Like that's really creepy to me, too. So, yeah, that is today's case of Herb Baumeister and the Fox Hollow Farms. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you for listening. And yeah, I will be back next week sometime with another episode. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend. My birthday's on Monday.